context and clarity to a lot of what we uh, go through in life. And more importantly, though, just to the Bible. So that's what I want to encourage us with. We'll start with that. Again, if you're newer to the series here or uh, to the Bible, that's our interpretational methodology. That's how we're approaching this book. And all of the Bible is as if God is building, he's telling a story. And the climax of the greatest story ever told is the cross. And everything that builds up to that somehow helps tell the story to get to that. And so since we're before it, we're anticipating the cross and using it to grant clarity to the foggy nature of these earlier parts of of the gospel accounts. So again, not entirely foggy, but uh, still uh, somewhat foggy. So what I want to do then is recap last week. Uh, we're, We're in chapter 13. Two weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the sower, the first parable Jesus tells. Last week is a bit of a digression because the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables at all? Why don't, you, why don't you just speak very, because he does speak clearly in other places about his character, uh, more clearly about the nature of the kingdom of God. He's going to get much clearer here between here and the cross and just talking, predicting the future about what's going to happen and even details surrounding his betrayal and his passion, his suffering, what he's going to do on the cross. So that's coming here too. We'll see that here uh, in the upcoming weeks. Um, but before this, it's been, it's been unclear. So his disciples ask, why are you speaking this way and why? Why don't you explain these parables to the crowds? And why are you, why are you explaining them privately to us? Because he does explain them privately to the disciples and gets much more clear about what they mean. We had three reasons last week that was the case. Can't recap all that this week. We'll be, it'll just be another sermon and we'll just stop. So I can't do that. The first two reasons are important. The third reason, though, we had uh, is the biggest, I think, of this. that can be the, the most or the, the less obvious, I guess you could say. But I think one of the most important. And it's, it is, like everything, like we just talked about, cross-related. And the answer to that reason why, the big reason, why Jesus speaks in parables and hides some of that teaching about the kingdom of God in these word picture type teachings, why he's keeping some of it somewhat veiled to the crowds, but revealing to others, was to ensure that those who are rejecting him, who have already decided to kill him, who have already set out to seek to, as it said earlier in, I think it was chapter 12, the Pharisees set out to see how they could destroy him, to ensure that they will not understand and further reject him so that he might be betrayed and crucified for the sins of the world. It's one of those really hard things to understand how God is is using this rejection and almost with parables and other things as well, ensuring that that would continue to take place so that the cross would happen. Because we have to ask this question, why do parables not exist on the other side of the cross? Why does the main thing the church gather around is not veiled, cryptic, poetic teaching where we ask, I don't know sure what that means. Why is it crystal clear? Why, why is it just before the cross? Why does before the cross, as I say here in Matthew 16, 20, why does Jesus say to the disciples, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah? He strictly warns them, it says in Matthew 16, not, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ, the Messiah. But why afterwards does he say, go tell the four corners of the earth? The exact opposite, you know? What happened at the cross? What's happened in the early part of the story here? What happens leading up to the cross and then what happens after to, to change all of that? And again, the answer is the cross is always the mission of God. Since the very beginning of history, the very be- when sin came into the world, God set out to redeem all creation, starting with human beings. So he became a human being to redeem us. So, but the way that that occurs is the cross. There's no other way. To ensure that that would happen, Christ is helping to guide history here and ensure that he's rejected by people like us, sinful people we misunderstood, and he spoke in parables and said things like this in Matthew 16, 20, tell no one I'm the Christ. He even healed people miraculously and said, don't tell anybody that, that this miracle occurred. 
all this is basically doing the same kind of thing. There are other reasons why this is happening too, but I think there are lesser reasons. The main reason is to demonstrate uh, God's control over history and that he can even use rejection to bring about great good. And he's intending all along to bring about the cross to save us. That's how much he loves us. And even the people that are rejecting him, he's saving. So they're not necessarily lost forever. The people that actually crucified him, though they're rejecting him here, he's actually using their rejection to bring about the greatest good of all, the salvation of the world. So that is why, the main reason why he's speaking in parables here and why we don't see parables after the cross and why there's this foggy to clear progression uh, throughout the scriptures that we have to embrace. If we're reading the Bible cover to cover, that's what we would see. But we have that clarity with the cross. So that's what we're going to do today then, is read these parables. So with all of that said from last week and to recap this morning, uh, that's an important thing to understand. Uh, but now on this side of the cross, and because of Jesus' explanations of some of these parables to the disciples, which are recorded in the Bible, we have that clarity. But we also got to put ourselves in the crowd's shoes and just get that fogginess to understand God had a plan for this. And he's totally in control. He's a savior. He loves us. And he's using every. Nothing can derail the plan of God. Nothing. He's using everything, even this evil of the Son of God dying on a tree in a cursed manner, as the Bible says it is, uh, to bring about the greatest good. So praise God for that. And if that doesn't give you some hope for your life, I don't know what's going to, right? Because that's, I mean, that's looking that's look at the worst of all things in a lot of ways, the most evil, yet still divinely foreseen by God, of course. But it's the bookends of history, like we mentioned last week. If God can use that, how much more can he use the lesser things that we go through in life? Not to diminish those things. It's just to highlight how much worse and evil that it was that God died in a cursed manner on a tree with criminals on both sides. But how much good came from that? No, no better good. So with those bookends in mind, we're going to progress here. That's a recap from last week, a couple of weeks ago. We're going to progress into the parable of the weeds today. It's another great parable, also agrarian. As you can, again, imagine in the first century context, though we have this today as well. He speaks in a lot of agrarian metaphors, talking again about a sower and wheat and weeds today and servants who help uh, farm and manage those things and ultimately harvest. So, which again, it's a split passage. So Matthew 13, 26 to 30 and 36 to 43. Uh, we saw a split passage two weeks ago too at the parable of the sower. And one, one more thing to mention here and again affirm what I was talking about before. The reason these are splits is to convey in their own literary device kind of way that the crowds hear the parable, but it's kind of foggy, somewhat veiled, later in the house privately, so it's a split passage, you kind of get that with literary device employed here, later in the house, the disciples get the meaning. So it's just kind of neat how these are split passages. So not only just to say that Jesus went into a house and explained the parable of the disciples, but just to get the feel of that by having, you know, a few parables in between here, and then, oh yeah, there's, that's right, there's this parable of the weeds that Jesus later explained. So that's what is going on here in a literary device kind of way by having these split up and not write one after each other. With that said, though, we're going to look at them both together because we've already talked about why he splits these up. We've already talked about why he speaks in parables. We're just going to look at this, what, what the teaching is and what it means what that means for our life and how this is a just good old-fashioned gospel stuff here to encourage a church with. All right, Matthew 13, 26 to 30 and 36 to 43, that latter part is the explanation. Verse 24, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? 
He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do what you want us, then do what you want us to go and gather. Do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the fields. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, so to put Paul this even simpler, pulling from the explanation here in this last portion, to put it even simpler, Jesus and Satan in this parable are both sowing seeds into the world right now. It's a, it's a present depiction of reality, though there's a futuristic bent to it, obviously. The harvest has not yet happened, but still that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is a present reality for us. And from Jesus' vantage point here pre-cross, it was coming into the world. It was really going to come into the world when he dies on the cross for sins and rises again. But anyway... The seeds are two types of people. There's the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil. Though they both concurrently exist in the world now, at the end of the age, they will either be weeded out and burned or judged, or they'll be harvested or saved. So this is not a parable about the church then narrowly, but the greater world. Believers and unbelievers are living among each other now, but at the end, there will be the final great separation between the two. It's really what's going on here. Just classic this is what's, this is, God is saving the world, but not all are saved. And, and this is a final judgment depiction of how that's going to, there's a harvesting, but some will be burned and some will be harvested into the barn, you know, which is, which is a metaphor for God's dwelling place, his presence, his, his inheritance. So there's no third type of plant. So the first thing I just want you to see, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this today because we have elsewhere, but note that there are weeds and there's wheat. A really simple thing, but don't read past that too quickly. There's no cross between a weed and a wheat here. It's impossible. There's the weeds, the, the non-wheat, and, and there's the wheat. And it's likely here that uh, the type of weed in question, most commentators agree, though it's not named, is a bearded darnel, which is botanically close to a wheat and difficult to distinguish when the plants are young, but when they grow up, it's easy because the wheat has this clear uh, seed on the head. And so at young, when they're young, well, they, they almost look indistinguishable. So it's possible that the wheat and the weeds could be somewhat indistinguishable even now in the present age or at some point in salvation history, but at the very end it's going to be clear who are the wheats and who are, who are the weeds. So a strong uh, end time bent to this parable. A lot of this is happening now as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and people respond and are being saved or rejected or not, uh, but at the same time a lot, the harvest here when the angels go forth and harvest and people are raised and judged and all that, that's still yet future to be clear uh, from where we are here in history as well. But it's about the nature of the kingdom of God. Salvation's coming to the world, but as he says elsewhere, not all are being saved. So pretty simple concept, but have to understand the two camps here. To, to be with Christ is to be saved, but to not be with him is actually to be against him, as Jesus says elsewhere. You can't be that neutral camp. Even though it's technically different to be antagonistic and to be neutral, 
with Christ? In one sense, biblically, it's not. It's to be with him, to believe in him, and cast yourself upon him is to be saved and to be the wheat. And then to be either neutral or antagonistic, both together, is to be, is to be a weed. All right. So what I want to do, though, is go back and walk through this uh, more slowly. It's pretty, it's pretty self-descript in a lot of ways, but I want to go back and bring in a greater wealth of Scripture here and walk through the bad news, because you saw tons of bad news in this passage, tons of good news as well. So we'll end with the good. We'll start with the bad, or like we like to call it around here sometimes, the pre-gospel. What we've got to understand before we get to the good news. It's just it's true in life as well, right? Good news usually comes after uh, bad news. So it's good, it's good news because it's better than what you're experiencing presently. Uh, the Bible's uh, that way as well. There's a lot of bad news the Bible teaches, but it doesn't stop there. Praise God. Uh, it gives a lot of good as well, which we'll come to. Uh, two things on the bad news then. We'll start there. First thing is, uh, as the parable teaches, there is a devil, there is a Satan, which means adversary, and he is at work. So if we back up here a bit, I mean, that's bad news in and of itself, but if you back up a bit and ask the greater question, because Jesus says there's a devil, but here he depicts him as one who sows into the world. He's a sower. He's a planter. The devil is not just one who exists. It's not just some personified angelic being, but he's actually at work sowing evil and discord into the world, and he's antagonistic towards the creator. We see that in the Bible. But if we ask the greater question, how has he been doing this? That's what's not clear, right? It's clear that he's sowing, but if we ask how has the devil been doing this, how has he been sowing seed into the world since the beginning, the answer biblically is by deception. He's been deceiving human beings into thinking that being their own God is the right way to go. If you back up way at the beginning of the Bible, that's what it teaches. Genesis 3, 1 to 5, one of the most important passages that we can understand in the whole Bible and how it helps us understand the rest of the Bible, helps us understand why, what Jesus came to remedy, helps us understand what sin is. So let me just read this and we'll unpack it a bit. Genesis 1 to 3, or 5, 3, 1 to 5. The serpent, Satan, said to the woman Eve, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's important. We'll come back to that. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, so this is crucial. I'm leaving some contextual stuff out here, but God makes the earth and makes human beings, puts them in a garden, and commands Adam especially to, to work it and keep it. Eve is created out of, his, out of his, uh, one of his ribs. They're married. This happens right after that. So uh, the serpent is as crafty as the Bible says, and it speaks to the woman. It's, it's obviously, it's a Satan here, an angelic, evil angelic being who's set out to deceive Eve. But he says, God actually saved me not eat of any tree in the garden. What happened here is God set up a garden. He says, you can eat any fruit of the tree except this one tree. The name of the tree is super crucial, though. So again, if you like to, I'm going to say this a lot, but if you like to underline things in your Bible, that's one to do. Because the name of it's super, super important. Underline that thing and know, why did God name this tree? He didn't just say, here's one tree that looks a certain way and you can't eat of this one or just, you know, vaguely name it. This is the name of what it's, the fruit of this tree is the knowledge of, of good and evil. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, God said, command them to, then you'll actually die. But the serpent comes in and says, no, God's lying. You won't die. You'll actually be like God. You know, the dif difference between good and evil and you'll be better off than you are, than you are now. So, Super deceptive. But a lot to say there, but going back for today's purposes, it's important just to understand here, this is 
this depicts the mission of the devil very well for us here. As we think about the devil at work in the world and how he's deceiving, how he's sowing, uh, this is a very helpful passage. Because if you look, look back into chapter 2, which I know we're not today, but if you know the general story, Adam and Eve were created just to be with God. Right? And actually, to pull from this tree name, they were okay not knowing the difference between good and evil. Right? Actually, they were well off. Just being with God, that was sufficient. Morality was not there in the very beginning. Just God himself. And Adam and Eve were created, and they were resting with him. They were provided for by him. They are partaking of all the fruit of the garden graciously. God's giving everything. It's a one-way thing. They're just receiving the gift of God. And that was very, uh, again, descriptive in a lot of ways of salvation, pre-fall salvation. It was when God said, don't eat of this tree, but called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Satan wooing them to that, that all hell broke loose. It was really the introduction of morality, knowing this difference between good and evil, and, and with that, as Satan says, becoming your own God, becoming many gods. You'll be like God. That's a key phrase there as well. Knowing the difference between good and evil, and in that, becoming your own divine being. That's when all hell broke loose. That's, that's, that's how sin came into the world in broad spectrum, but that is a great definition of sin as well. Being a re- Not just lying, though that's a piece to it. That's just like a tree, not the forest. The forest here is rebelling against the creator, wanting to be our own God, and pursuing morality, and being our own law unto ourselves, rather than... Uh, claiming and believing in that God is, is sufficient unto himself. And this is what we've all been born into. We've inherited all this from our first parents, Adam and Eve, but with it, this propensity to be our own gods, to determine good and evil on our own, and with that, this is key, to seek to approach God through our own morality on our own terms rather than through God's love and grace. You guys see how this came into history way back at the beginning? I mean, ever since then, people have been seeking to approach God through the knowledge of good and evil, climbing the ladder to him through laws, through do's and don'ts, rather than Adam and Eve had before all of that. They just had grace. They had love. They had God just being God, and that was enough. And that was enough. And everything was right in the universe, especially with them and God. That was the covenant that they had with them. So ever since then, we've, we've been doing that. We call that religion a lot. Here's a lot of definitions for religion. We use that actually in a negative sense here at Hiawatha because of the connotations. And actually, a lot of definitions you'll see like in Webster's Dictionary basically say what man can do to climb to God. What man can do, self-created uh, devices uh, to get to God, you know, whether it be words or, or deeds or whatever it is. Basic definition of religion. Again, though there are many. So we use it in a negative sense. Christ comes to combat that. But the devil is very instrumental here in bringing that into the world by saying, actually, it's good for you to know morality. It's good for you to know good and evil like God. Then you'll be like him. That's exactly what we didn't have to have in the beginning. But ever since then, again, all hell broke loose and religions are created and people did all kinds of things to get back to him on their own strength rather than basking in his grace alone. I think of this too with my son. You know, we can see this self-justifying thing all the time. Like when I talk, my son's uh, four. I guess know I have a son, but my uh, son is four. His name's Emmett. And just yesterday I was telling Peter this. Uh, we talk, try to help him understand at an early age, you know, what sin is, what wrongdoing is, what transgression is, and how that's the bad news, how God gives us the good news. But, you know, we talk about certain things that the Bible says, and this is wrong, this is an offense to God. You know, right away how ingrained it is, even in a three-year-old, you know, my son Emmett will so quickly say, Oh, but dad, you know, like if you say, the Bible says honor your father and mother or something. 
<laughs> which is, that's the one you got to play as a parent a lot, right? You know, pull out that one. That's the first commandment. No, it's not really, but. Um, <laughs> uh, but you say that, you know, my son's always like, oh, but dad, I, I would never, I've never done that. That's his first inclination. It's instinctual to self-justify. Or when I say, we talk about lying. Oh, but I've never done that, dad. Instinct, it's in our DNA. It's instinctual. We're born into this self-justifying, seeing ourselves as pretty good people, we, and, and knowing good and evil, and all of that, and just projects and, and responds. We're self-defensive. We're self-justifying people, and it's not there like when you turn, you graduate from college, and all of a sudden, you, you know, all of a sudden, there it is. It's there right from the womb, and this is what we're born into. This is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we have all, through our first parents, Adam and Eve, partaken of, and it's just sitting there in our stomach, digesting. And this is what we are before God. We are our own gods. We're self-just. We might think Jesus is pretty great, uh, but really on our own terms. A lot of people are there. Jesus is pretty great. I, I respect him. I, I like what he's all about, what his agenda is. But he's not a savior. I'm not a bad person. He's making me a pretty good person great. That's what he came into the world to do. And it manifests itself in that way and many, many, many other ways uh, as well. But Anyway, we'll come back to this here in a second, but for now, understand this is how the devil has been sowing and deceiving into the world, and we are all born, we are all born into it. All right, it gets way worse. Uh, second thing is uh, <laughs> a divine judgment is coming for all lawbreakers. This is the worst news. Divine judgment's coming for all lawbreakers, it says. For, verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, and here's the key phrase, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The phrase I want you to look at is in that second line, all lawbreakers. So not the worst of lawbreakers, all lawbreakers. And that's crucial because we can take one of two paths with that. We can be confronted with that phrase and say, I know the worst of lawbreakers. They're over there somewhere. I've known a couple. Or we can say, this is a mirror. And it's referring to me. I'm a lawbreaker. And, and, and really, we always do that, right? It's one of the two. It really can't be both. Is this about other people? Well, always in one sense, yes, because all of sin. But is this, is this a mere type teaching that brings me to my knees before my creator with empty hands? That's what I think is trying to take place. As you span back a bit, Romans 3.19, different letter in the New Testament. What the law says, whatever it says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. So when God gives laws in the Bible, like do this or don't do this, don't commit adultery, don't worship other gods, the major purpose to that, as the Bible teaches, is to stop our mouths before God. Because we realize if we're honest, if, if they are a mirror, if they're reflective of our soul, then we have nothing before God at all. We're, we're, we're moving from that place of like my son, like all of us, of being but I'm not like that, but I'm a pretty good person, Our, that is stopped with, with, with a proper meditation on the law. We can't, we have nothing to say before God to our defense. Nothing. That's why the Bible in the Old Testament cries out for redeemers so much. Like in the book of Job, where I, I need a redeemer, I need an advocate, I need someone to come between me and God. It's a guy who got it. And that's what we all need to get in Christ to be saved uh, or a toast. Uh, all of, Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. So Bible speaks in very comprehensive, this includes everybody at tight manners when it talks about lawbreakers and sin. So if we read this into this passage, as you know, we should, it's just equally God's word, who's, who are the lawbreakers? 
are, is, this, is this someone else or is this us? And the answer is, when we read this on a personal level, as a communal level, we are the lawbreakers. So if that's true then, if we are lawbreakers, if we are spiritual criminals and traitors and rebels, if we've been our own gods, we all have in some capacity, if we've been a law unto ourselves, if we're incapable of keeping the laws that come up later in the Bible as well, uh, that's, that's the bad news. This is a basement type stuff here. And then it gets even worse because it says, uh, the bad news is that all of us are headed to this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about hell. To eternal separation from God and uh, eternal torment. And that's added there. He just says weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a common description of what hell is going to be like. And the Bible comes up, comes up in Revelation as well. We don't know what that means exactly. Jesus is not trying to be you know, exclusively descriptive of what hell is going to be like here. But, but I liked what one commentator said that I read. He just said, he acknowledged that but said, but it's obvious here this is not the good choice. You know, like no one wants to go to a place of weeping. And that is just kind of understatement of the century, you know. But, um, so, uh, but I think that's, that's in mind here. And, and as we look at the cross, if you want to know what hell is, then look to the cross because Jesus bore it for us. Jesus was separated from God the Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So separation from God is part of hell. And he also experienced physical torment uh, as a crucified individual too. So he, he screams out uh, as well uh, in that capacity. So hell is both. And again, we still don't know exactly what that's going to be like, but it's going to be a place of weeping, of gnashing of teeth, physical torment, but separation from God as well. We're separated now and banished from his presence in our sin, but he's, that's what Christ is all about, is, is remedying that state. We don't have to fear the banishment anymore or eternal banishment in this time because we have that intermediary, that one who's found us as, as lost sheep and brought us back to the fold. So banishment then is, is a current human condition, but it does not have to be eternal. It doesn't have to be, but it will be for those who reject the only shepherd chasing down the lost sheep, the only intermediary, the only one who's died for that banishment and taking that banishment upon himself. When he says that on the cross, my God, speaking to God the Father, as God the Son, why have you forsaken me? My God, why are you distant? Why have you turned your face? And then as a Christian looking at that, you should rejoice and be just in awe of his love. He's taken that upon himself for you. So you don't ever have to, ever have to say that. You never say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken Because he never will. He'll never forsake you. You can never lose that. He's accomplishing and earning and working for our salvation in that manner and undoing all this Genesis 3 stuff. That's what happened after that Genesis 3 passage we read earlier is Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden of his presence. And ever since then, God has been working in the world ultimately in a climax way through his son to undo that kicked out of the garden banishment type thing that happened. Praise God. That's, that, that is the case. All right, so that's what's happening. Uh, that's what's happening here. This is the bad news. It's, it's reaching a peak or if you want to think about it this way, like a basement. There's no worse news in the Bible. If you're newer to the Bible, let me just say that. There's nothing, it doesn't get any worse than that. that. That is the worst news, and it's, it's wor- as bad as you can imagine. That's the basement. So you can only go up from here, right? And praise God, there's a lot of up in this passage because he could have stopped. There, might, there, might, there could have been in this parable, in one sense, only one sower, but there's a second sower, and it's God himself. So let's look at that now. So that's all the bad news, the good news. I have three things. First is that Jesus, the Son of Man, is sowing, not us. This goes back to the parable the sower looked at two weeks ago. Similar things going on, some overlap. They don't talk about sowing in the exact same way, but it goes back to that same metaphor, kind of pulling from it here in a unique way. In verses 37 and 38 of this week's passage, he answered, 
The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, Jesus. The field is the world, and the good, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So there's tons of hope here, right? Set against this backdrop of all this bad news we just talked about. But the hope here, it's clear, is sown by Jesus, which is even greater hope. It's just good news to know there's another sower, and it's God himself. But especially good news to know that he's the one who's at work. It's not us. The parable's not about the other person being us, sowing somehow goodness into the world. It's not the devil and people. It's the devil and Jesus, who's counteracting all of this evil that, that the devil has, and with us cooperating, of course, with him by being sinners, but the devil bringing all this evil into the world. It's really, really good news it's Jesus. Basically what this is saying in, a, in an enigmatic, parabolic kind of way is God saves, you don't. Jesus sows salvation, you don't. God goes to work for you, you don't go to work for him. God is your father, not your slave master. You know, all these things can be wrapped up into this one little seemingly passing description of, of the Son of Man, Jesus, that he's the active one, sowing salvation into the world. So the parable of the weeds, then, is a statement of fact, not a call to a particular type of lifestyle. Jesus is not sowing, do this and you will live into the world, right? He's not doing any of that. He's not sowing seeds of, keep this and you'll be saved. He's sowing, this is a key phrase too, sons of the kingdom. They're people, right? Which is, again, amazing. And this is foggy here. Through the cross, it's clear. But at this point, he's just saying, basically, I'm the one bringing the salvation for people into the world. I'm bringing, I'm bringing saved people. I'm sowing that. I'm making that possible. I'm planting that in the world. Not do this and you will live. Just rest in me, the farmer, the sower. I'm at work. So Jesus says also, I think in John 5, he talks about himself. God has always been at work, and, and now he's really working in me. I'm paraphrasing, but now he's really going to work again. God is a working God for, that's how much he loves you today, right now. He's gone to work for you. He's done something you couldn't do. He's not way up there waiting for you to get your life together. He's coming and planting salvation into the world on his own terms. So we should take refuge in that. Lawbreakers and sons of the devil are being saved on Jesus' terms, not ours. We do not save ourselves. And this is one way, again, the cross grants a lot of clarity uh, to this parable because without the cross, it's still a little bit foggy. But as we read, we could ask, how does Jesus sow salvation? And pre-cross, there'd be a lot of fogginess to that. But now on this side, we have the answer. The, re the way he sows salvation is to the death of himself. The way he sows that is by slain death, like we sang about before, by walking out of that tomb. That's how it's accomplished. That's where Matthew 13 is headed. It's pointed that way. It's making a beeline to the cross and that's how the fulfillment of Matthew 13 comes into the world uh, as well. But it's very clear with the cross that it's by grace we're saved, uh, by the sowing nature of Jesus Christ and not by our moral righteousness. And that leads me to the second point, uh, which is related, but it's the righteous will be saved. This is big too. In uh, verse 43 it says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their kingdom, in the kingdom of their father. And the tension here, if you think about it, like all we talked about with lawbreakers before, all are lawbreakers, all are headed to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and yet the Bible talks about these righteous people too. So it just makes you think, right? Well, who are they? What does it mean to be right? How do I get in that camp if the Bible says over here, I'm born into this and I can't get out of it myself? 
The more I try, the more it's like quicksand, the more I sink. So how do you get over here? One of the most important things you can ask about the Bible, one of the most important questions about theology, bar none, is what does it mean to be righteous? According to the Bible, what does it mean to be righteous or blameless before God? What does it mean to be saved and to be labeled as such in uh, God's economy or God's, uh, in terms of how God defines it here in the Bible? And the answer is those who live by faith in God alone are righteous. Those who trust in God alone, biblically, all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, it's clear. Those who trust in God as imperfect people, but who trust in a perfect God to save them and make them righteous in his sight through what he does, they're the ones declared righteous all throughout the scriptures. It's by faith we're saved. A couple of verses on this uh, from Romans 1.17. The righteous shall live by faith. And he's quoting the Old Testament. So Old and New Testament, the righteous people live by, faith means active trust. It's saying, Jesus, what he did on the cross for my sins is enough. I'm putting active trust in that. Hebrews 11, without that trust in God to save, it's impossible to please him. We can't please God by, being, by living a moral life. As a Christian, there's obviously places for tons of good works, but he produces them. On the front side of that, however, we can't please him without believing that we can't save ourselves. We cannot do it. Faith comes right along with that idea that we, we, we believe we're imperfect and we're messed up and he alone can save. And so that's faith. It's believing he's the only life raft in the middle of the ocean and clinging to it. That's what it means to be righteous and counted as such in the Bible. A law-breaking wretch clinging to the cross for, for dear life. Adopted in the family of God so that he actually is our father and not a slave master. So the response then to all the bad news we talked about before, you'll, no, you'll notice here, if we plug in that definition of righteous, is, it's not, because if you don't have that, if you don't have the cross, you'll see the bad news and you'll see a little bit of hope of righteousness and you'll try to live a really, really good life to get over here. That's the only possible solution without the cross. I mean, that's, that's where religion comes from. If we, know, if we believe there's a God and we believe we're kind of messed up, the only thing we'll do without knowledge of Jesus and what he did on the cross and saving us by grace is we'll try really hard to clean our life up, right? What else is there to do? But the clarity this gives then with the, with the Bible's definition of righteous is not try harder, but believe more in the sower. Believe that God is at work sowing saved people on his terms through the cross and empty tomb into into the world. It's amazingly good news. So really, actually, it's the reversal of all of that Garden of Eden stuff we talked about before. Satan said, morality and being your own God will save you. That's the truth. That's what Satan said. Jesus says, I will save you. I'm enough. Not law, not you, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but me, the tree of life. I'm God and I'm rescuing you to the uttermost. See the major difference there? He's, he's reversing the lie of Satan, saying it's not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's the tree of life. The foremost revelation of which is the cross itself because Jesus died on a tree, on a cross, the Bible says. The ultimate tree of life is there. Partake of that. Partake of the fact that God has done everything to save. And you can't digest that morality fruit. None of us can. We're never meant to eat it. Go to God. Rest that he's done everything. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. That's what the gospel screams to a dead and dying world that is complete 180 from all other world religions and pseudo-Christian cults that have ever existed. No other system says God does everything. Everything else is about climbing that ladder to God. 
But Jesus trashes the ladder and says, look, I'm here to save. I'm sowing salvation, you aren't. Rest in that. I love you. I've come to take all of that, all of that burden of your salvation literally on my shoulders. It's on me, uh, not on you. Third and final, if we add this gospel in our hearts, then this last point becomes good news, not bad news, though it could be good news, depends on our spiritual state currently today. But this third point is, evil will be entirely put away in the end. Verse 41 says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. So this is sobering news, of course, for the church, um, or for all of us, I mean, in general for the world, but also wonderful news for the church, for those who are sons of the kingdom and who live by faith in Christ because that phrase, all causes of sin, no longer encapsulates us. So super sobering that this is going to take place. Jesus said, this is true, and never breaks his promise, it's coming. But for those of us who are sons of the kingdom now, we're not a weed, and so we're not going to be gathered up and burned into this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth in this fiery furnace. We're not going to go. So it's really great news. And it's not just lawbreakers. That's that personal dimension to it. He says here, all, all causes of sin, which I think has a degree of an apocalypticness to it in the sense that all causes. So you've got the devil in that, all lawbreakers, but everything that's, that's, that's affected and marred by sin as well. So Everything from like really bad, severe weather even to pain and shame and relational tension. Everything that's just not right in the world, Jesus is going to write in the end. It's going to happen. Whenever we feel that, we know that, that its days are numbered. From a Christian worldview, it will not, it could kill us. It could literally kill us, but it will not have the last laugh or say. So that, that resolution of all of our stories is coming. And we get, we get a taste of this all the time, all the time. When we see a good movie with a great ending or read a great book with a great ending that has a lot of justice or resolution at the end, we're getting a foretaste of that. The ultimate good movie ending is coming. It's, and we're going to have that high that we get after we finish those stories times a billion at the very end. It's coming. No more foretaste, no, more, no sequels, no hanging concern that evil somehow survived, like we get in a lot of stories that are imperfect, right? But at the very end, just final destruction of all causes of sin forever. And a lot of times, sin is, this world and this life is so bad, it's all we got to hang our hat on right there. That Jesus is an enemy and antagonistic towards all this bad stuff in my life. And in one sense, that includes me. I'm an enemy. You're an enemy, the Bible says, but praise God, he's an enemy-loving God. He saved us. But in an objective sense, you can look out of the world, whatever is hanging over the world in a dark way, whatever is bothering us, whatever is weighing us down, whatever injustices we face on any level, those things in a cosmic way are going to be addressed and slain and bound up in, a, in, in an apocalyptic end time sense here as well. Those are weed-like things. That's just good news, right? We can't feel that totally right now, but just objectively reading that here, you're saying that is believing. It could be before we leave here today. Christ could come back that soon. Or it could be in a thousand years. Whatever the case, this is going to happen. And we just have a choice to believe that or not. Especially when we're suffering. Do we believe that or not? That God, God looks upon all this stuff and it's a plan to weed it out and to burn it and to, bind, and to bind it up and burn it. Revelation 20.10 gives us one angle on this as it pertains to the devil. The devil, who at the end of the book, 
The devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. In Revelation 21, speaking of the, the redeemed people, the church who are with him in the new earth, he will wipe away, Jesus will, every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. All those things will be burned. No more mourning, no crying, no pain. All causes of sin will be put away. The former things have passed away. Praise God. So in conclusion then, uh, he who has ears, let him hear. I love how Jesus ends with this. He's just saying, hear and understand. Because a lot of people will hear this, it'll go right through their head, and they won't apply this and believe it's true. So I have three things. First is, just believe this is a true depiction of reality right now. That right here in the room even, uh, much more the greater world, that there are weeds and there are wheat. The gospel is being proclaimed in the four corners of the earth. It's clear, no more parables. It's clear God loves you. He sent his son to die on a cross for your sins. He sowed that salvation. He's come your way. That's what he's like. Do you believe that or not? And, and right here in this room, there's probably both, weeds and wheats. Where are you right now? If, if, you're, if you're a weed today, you can be wheat. If you're a son of the devil, you can be a son of the kingdom just through belief. Don't try harder. Believe harder and have faith more that God is enough and that he really has sown salvation. He really has planted grace in your heart through the cross and through the empty tomb. That's the call for you if you're wheat today. If you're a weed, though, wherever you are, if you're a weed, I mean, or actually wherever you are spiritually, the call here is because we can still live like a son of the devil even if we're not. So stop living like that in our religion. Stop pursuing being a good person. Stop eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stop trying to sow salvation uh, ourselves and pursue Jesus as though he's enough because he is. His saving grace is sufficient. Uh, so believe and trust in him and to, to make him Make us righteous before him by his blood. Remember, that's what it means to be righteous in the Bible. It's not being a great person. It's being made righteous by being covered by his blood. His blood is a cleansing agent, the Bible says. His blood is what earns and accomplishes divine forgiveness for us. That's how it comes into the world. So we we put our trust in that. We're forgiven and we're washed and we're made righteous. He died for lawbreakers like us among lawbreakers. Uh, and that's what we've got to put our trust in. Last thing, uh, persevere in him. I want to mention this here because I think it's the last uh, sow, sowing-like agrarian metaphor that we have in, in Matthew. We'll talk about some more close stuff later, but um, I think plants grow slowly for a reason, by God's design, uh, to remind us that the long haul of growth in the gospel and bearing fruit in the gospel is what matters, not a flash-in-the-pan spiritual experience. So the Bible says Christians are like a plant, and the Christian life is like a walk, it says. Walk in the Spirit. Walk with Jesus. It's not a sprint. So picture a long walk, miles and miles and miles. That's what it means to grow and persevere in the faith, like a plant growing, which you can't see grow in a day, but look at it a week later, you can see a little bit of growth and some more fruit maybe on the branches. That's how the Bible depicts growth in, 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 in grace. Not a flash-in-the-pan thing, so it's encouraging wherever you are spiritually, keep going and keep being a person of dependence and faith and belief in the gospel. That's the thing that, that we need to keep, keep, keep on working hard at. Not at being a great person, but being a sinner before Jesus who's, who's purchased and who's loved and who's sown into by the grace of God. Then and only then will our life be transformed by his spirit and will love and good deeds and kindness and humility be born as fruit, but that's something Jesus gives after the fact. And it's clear here, righteousness comes from him and him alone. So I want to invite you guys to that. Wherever you are spiritually, I don't care about yesterday. Today, the Bible says, I think, and it does this all the time, and I love this, 
challenges the church to say, test yourself and see if you're in the faith. Where are you right now? Do you believe this is an accurate depiction of reality? This is the kingdom of God right now in the world, that there's wheat and weeds and a savior and an adversary, and there's going to be a judgment at the end. And what are you doing with that? Again, the, the, the call here is not go and live better. The call is, praise God, there's a sower, right? That's the only response you can have. Thank God there's not just an enemy. There, there's, a, there's a good sower. There's a son of man. There's an atoning sacrifice. So just go encouraged by that today. A lot of you guys, that's all you need to hear. Well, all of us, that's the case. But especially some of you who've been trying too hard, uh, trying to perform. Stop the performance and just believe that he's sufficient. Uh, that's what it means to be righteous in his eyes. And if you have that, as the parable says, you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of a, a father like God who loves you deeply, like a really, really, really good father. And that's just amazing, good gospel truth there. So we'll respond here with a couple of songs, and uh, let me pray for us, though. God, thank you uh, today for your grace at work in all of our lives. Thank you for uh, the parable of the weeds, which on this side of the cross we can have a lot of clarity in and just see how uh, one angle on an image for your grace and saving work in the world is being a sower. I saw it two weeks ago. In one sense, we're seeing a fresh angle on that today. Thank you for coming against the work of the devil. Thank you for coming against the lie that being our own gods is the right way to go and that morality itself and self-justifying type way of living, religion, is a right way to go. God, thank you for just destroying that lie with, as you call yourself, the truth. You and all you're about, the cross, the empty tomb, your ultimate mission, that's the truth in a world full of lies. So God, I pray that you would just take the fog, the fogginess away, whatever that fogginess is before us, and give the clarity of the cross, what God, what, what he's like in that, the empty tomb, and encourage us as a church community with it today. Uh, send us here thankful, uh, God, because really from being a religious law, law-centered person, only from that comes contempt and anger and sadness. Joy and thanksgiving truly come from something outside of me is bigger than me. I'm not the center of the universe. Someone, someone is saved. God is saved. He's come to me and saved me to the uttermost. Praise God. That's the case today. God, help us to respond now to thanksgiving and, again, leave us here protected and, and encouraged in you and in what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond. Mm-hmm.